it's Friday the 12th of January and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon j a n g w o South Korea and seven other countries have endorsed joint strikes by the US and UK against targets linked to Houthi militants in Yemen. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. Coming up for weekly economy review, we discuss the Bank of Korea's decision this week to freeze the key interest rate for the eighth time and the country's record high employment rate last year. And on Movie Spotlight, our critics give their thoughts on Alienoid 2, The Return to the Future, and No Bears, the latest from the acclaimed Iranian filmmaker Jafar Panahi. We have all that and more on today's Crow 24. The US and Britain have carried out joint strikes against targets linked to Houthi militants in Yemen on Thursday. This comes after the Iran-backed group carried out weeks-long attack on international shipping in the Red Sea. This move by the US and UK has now been endorsed by South Korea and seven other countries. Our KBS World Radio news editor k u h i j i n joins us in the studio to update us on the escalating conflict as well as our other headlines of the day. h e j i n hello. Hello, j a m a l So according to Pentagon officials, as well as reports by CNN and other major outlets, fighter jets, ships and submarines equipped with Tomahawk cruise missiles bombed more than 10 locations, including the group's supply hubs, air defence systems and arms storage. And South Korea has joined in issuing a joint statement backing the precision strikes. What more can you tell us about the statement? Well, in that statement on Friday, South Korea, the US, the UK, Australia, Bahrain, Canada, Denmark, Germany, the Netherlands and New Zealand said the strikes were conducted in accordance with the inherent right of individual and collective self-defence consistent with the UN Nations Charter. The country said the precision bombings were intended to disrupt and degrade the capabilities uh, the uh, Houthi rebels use to threaten global trade and the lives of international mariners in one of the world's most critical waterways. Calling the more than two dozen strikes, uh, uh, sorry, attacks by the rebels since mid-November, an international challenge, the country said the latest strikes demonstrated a a shared commitment to uh, freedom of navigation, international commerce and the defence of the lives of mariners from illegal and unjustifiable attacks. Now, since the outbreak of the Israel-Hamas war last October, the Houthis, who Uh, control most of Yemen have conducted around 30 missile and drone attacks on Red Sea shipping routes in support of Hamas, with the attacks disrupting international commerce. More than 20 countries agreed last month to uh, participate in a US-led coalition known as Operation Prosperity Guardian to safeguard uh, commercial traffic in the Red Sea. And this begs the question, what of the shipping routes used by Korean exporters in the Red Sea? Mm-hmm. The South Korean government held an interagency meeting on Friday and disclosed that it's seeking to set up logistic support measures amid rising tensions in the area. Can you give us more details? Well, the Ministry of Trade, Industry and Energy held an emergency export meeting on Friday along with the Korea Trade Investment Promotion Agency, or COTRA, and other trade associations to examine the impact of import and export logistics. 
statistics and discuss responses. The ministry said that there has been no uh, disruptions in the shipment of export goods or import of energy such as oil. In preparation for a shortage of cargo ships, the ministry said it plans to temporarily deploy four additional ships. The ministry also announced that it would actively recommend routes to shippers and uh, local logistics companies while also increasing cargo space on routes with insufficient capacity based on the results of surveys from small and medium-sized companies. And turning to yet another international conflict, the one in Ukraine, the US imposed fresh sanctions against Russian entities on Thursday over the nation's arms transfer with North Korea. What's the latest on this front? Well, the US hit three Russian entities and one individual uh, with sanctions on Thursday over the purported transfer of missiles from North Korea that are believed to have been fired into Ukraine. US Secretary of State Antony Blinken disclosed the move as he denounced Russia's war of aggression for inflicting suffering on the Ukrainian people with the help from Pyongyang. He warned that Washington will not hesitate to uh, take further action following up on its censure of Russia and North Korea in the UN Security Council meeting the the preceding day for three separate missile attacks against Ukraine over the last two weeks. Moscow's UN ambassador immediately refuted the assertion as false information that lacks evidence while uh, Pyongyang's representative, Kim Song, uh, followed up with a response published by the state-run Korean Central News Agency on Friday. The envoy blasted the US for uh, drawing North Korea into the discussions at the council, despite what he contended was a lack of relation to the issue at hand, and claimed that the move was indicative of Washington finding itself in a predicament. Despite the denials by the two sides, Ukraine remains adamant that Russia did indeed use North Korean weapons. Indeed. A uh, Ukrainian official said on Friday that the Defence Ministry analysis of the missile debris concluded that it was in fact a KN-23, the North's version of the Russian Iskander missile. The uh, military cooperation between North Korea and Russia has purportedly extended to other forms of material, with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky saying on a Thursday that the North sent over one million rounds of ammunition. Let's shift gears now to some other headlines. The debt-ridden developer Taeyang Engineering and Construction has won support from creditors in a vote to start a debt restructuring program. So can you update us on this situation? Well, the state-run uh, Korea Development Banks and other uh, creditors said on Friday that in a vote uh, that ended on midnight, 96.1% of the company's creditors voted to proceed with the proposed workout. Uh, according to financial regulations, a company seeking a debt workout program must secure uh, the approval of over 75% of its creditors. Now, as the workout process begins, the creditors will postpone their rights to claim repayment for up to four months. The KDB will con- uh, conduct due diligence on Taeyong's assets and liabilities for the next three months and establish a detailed restructuring schedule, which will be put to a vote at a creditors' meeting on April 11th. That's where we're going to wrap up our news briefing today. Heejin, thank you for bringing us those updates. Thank you.
South Korea's central bank on Thursday froze the key interest rate at 3.5%. It was the eighth consecutive rate freeze since last February. The bank said it made the decision in light of the slowing downward trend in inflation, but persistent growth in household debt. On today's weekly economy review, we'll zoom in on the Bank of Korea's rate decision. We'll also look at how the country's employment rate reached 62.6% last year, the highest figure since the nation started compiling the data back in 1963. And joining us in the studio for that is economics professor Yang Jun-suk from the Catholic University of Korea. Professor Yang, hello. Hello. Okay, so Professor, let's get straight into the BOK's latest rate decision. What was your reaction to it? Okay, well, Bank of Korea punted again. Uh, What I mean by punted is that they delayed making a hard decision because there was no right answer, and there was no particular reason for them to make a decision right now other than let's leave it the way that things are right now. And the reason is Korea is stuck between a rock and a hard place. It has good reasons to lower rates. It has good reason to raise the rates. Uh, So let's get the side of raising rates. We've done this before for the uh, last nearly a year now, but the situation really hasn't changed a whole lot. Uh, Inflation is falling, but it's still high. Uh, It's come down from a high of 6.3% in July 2022 to 3.2% in December last year, uh, but it's still above the uh, target rate of 2%. Similar story with core inflation as well. It came down from a high of uh, 4.2% in November 2022 to uh, 2.8% in December last year, but it's still higher than the target rate of 2%. Uh, And then uh, the uh, interest rate reversal, that's what we've been uh, worried about for uh, nearly a year and a half now. Uh, The Korea's uh, interest rates are below U.S. rates by a full two percentage points. And as we mentioned before, the uh, larger and longer the interest rate reversal, higher the chance that there will be a rapid devaluation of the one and a higher the chance that there might be a rapid capital outflow. Uh, Luckily, that hasn't happened. But two percentage point gap is still the largest on record. Mm. Uh, And the uh, length of uh, the interest rate reversal is now coming up on about 18 months. The longest we had was 25 months. Uh, And it's uh, if things are going as expected, this will probably be the longest interest rate reversal, period. Uh, so uh, we don't really want to increase the gap right now by lowering the rates. If anything, we want to try to uh, lower the difference by raising the rates. Uh, but uh, the problem is, uh, let me just mention one more problem, the uh, Korea's household and corporate debt. Uh, household debt, uh, the amount is somewhat uh, shrinking in the last couple of months or so, but still, as a percentage of GDP, it is still at uh, record high levels, and we're among the, uh, in terms of uh, debt-to-GDP ratios, uh, we have the highest, among the highest corporate and household debt among OECD countries. Uh, So those are good reasons for raising the rates, but then there's good reasons for lowering the rates as well. The biggest is the economic slowdown. We had 1.4% growth last year. Uh, This year's growth is expected to be 2.2%, but there's more downside risk than upside risk. Uh, And uh, unless we lower the rates, uh, we're probably going to have a very slow recovery. Uh, So... Uh, that's reason for lowering the rates. So 
Bank of Korea is caught in the middle. Right. You say punting the decision down the road it makes it sound like they're avoiding responsibility. But that is, at the moment, just the reality. That is the decision that uh, makes the most sense, right? In a sense, as, as, as I said, uh, there's downside to going uh, raising the rates. There's a downside to uh, uh, raising the rates. Uh, so the uh, best attitude, perhaps, is let's wait and see, mm. especially since the uh, Fed has signaled that they're not going to lower the rates in the near future. They will lower the rates sometime this year, uh, but it's questionable when it's going to be. Right. The BOK governor, Lee Chang-yong, said that there's currently less pressure for a further rate hike, uh, citing the continual downward trend in inflation and also easing external risks such as oil prices and the conflict in the Middle East. That, of course, uh, can change. However, he said it's too early to discuss possible rate cuts, and it's unlikely that the bank will cut the rate any time uh, for at least six months. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it's a bit more than that. Uh, first of all, inflation is still above target, but I think the real reason is the what uh, interest rate reversal that we've been talking about. Uh, the uh, higher the gap, uh, the higher the chances that we may have a rapid de- uh, depreciation of the one, higher the chance that we may have a rapid capital outflow, which will cause a lot more problems. So far, we did see the uh, devaluation of the one. We did see some uh, outflow of capital, though it's coming back in in the last few months. Uh, but they have been relatively slow, so uh, the economy was able to handle it. Uh, but uh, as I said, higher the gap or longer the gap, uh, the more chances that we will have those problems. We had one nervous scare in October of 2022. We don't want something like that to happen again. So the Bank of Korea will probably not lower the rates until we get a firm signal from the Fed that they are going to lower the rates, uh, lower the U.S. rates. Uh, but the problem is, we, uh, as I said, we don't know quite when the Fed will lower the rates. Right. Uh, the market, uh, I think the analysts are making a mistake, fundamental mistake, but still, some of them are uh, predicting that the U.S. will lower the rates as early as the second quarter of this year. And the Fed has said that they will make three rate cuts. Some of the market analysts are calculating that there will be six rate cuts, which I think is really, really overly optimistic. Uh, But still, uh, there's a lot of expectation that the rate cuts will come sooner rather than later. And I think the uh, Bank of Korea is trying to control that expectation because if you just look at the numbers, both for Korea and for the United States, it makes... Very little sense to cut the rates during the first half of the year. Uh, And uh, as I mentioned, the uh, market analysts have been continually being over-optimistic about rates going down for the last two or three years. Uh, So uh, I think the Bank of Korea is trying to give a signal that uh, we will have a high interest rate for longer rather than uh, rates coming down sooner. Uh, But it's questionable whether markets will listen. Right, so perhaps the sensible, cautious expectation is for the rate cuts uh, to come sometime in the second half of uh, this year and not any sooner. Okay, let's look at some other interesting employment data that came out this week. According to Statistics Korea on Wednesday, last year the number of employed people stood at 28,416,000. That's up 327,000 on year, a 1.2% increase. And that's also meant that the employment rate hit a record high. And job growth has bounced back to pre-pandemic levels. Annual growth in 2019 was 301,000. 
So, Professor, uh, what do you read into this and what factors contributed to the positive jobs report last year, especially coming at a time when we've been worried about a sluggish economy? Right. Uh, I should mention that the numbers you mentioned are annual numbers uh, for uh, 2023 as a whole. Sure. And uh, I will get into December numbers a bit later, but the problem with using the uh, 2023 numbers as a whole is that they're calculating from the average of 2023. And that means uh, some of the latest figures uh, might not be fully reflected because it's averaged in mm. rather than uh, looking at the latest numbers by themselves. Okay. Uh, but still, the annual numbers look very good. Uh, the uh, employment figures are, as you mentioned, highest uh, since they started gathering uh, the statistics. Uh, and this has been a bit of a, a paradox because Korean growth has not been exactly high uh, last year. Right. And the uh, reason may lie that uh, we did get more jobs. Uh, but they were perhaps not very good jobs while we did lose a lot of good jobs. Uh, so if you look at where the biggest job gains took place, it was in healthcare and social services, 143,000 jobs, and then lodging and dining, which uh, gained 114,000 jobs. Uh, now, uh, Health and social care, it's uh, mostly government-funded jobs, and it's uh, part-time jobs, and those are usually aimed at older citizens, retirees who need additional income. Uh, And lodging and dining, uh, those jobs gained because uh, traveling and dining came back after the pandemic. Uh, But again, these are usually lower-paying jobs. Uh, Where we lost jobs were manufacturing sector, uh, minus 43,000, and wholesale and retail distribution sectors, 37,000. And these are relatively higher-paying jobs. So that may explain why we had such lackluster growth but still had gains in jobs. Right. Uh, so you're saying annual figures look good, but perhaps when we look at the latest monthly figures, uh, there are some worrying signs. Yeah, if you look at December figures, uh, then the employment rate is 61.7%, so it's about uh, zero point, uh, It's about one percentage point lower, and unemployment rate is a bit higher at 3.3%. Also, if you look at the data by age, jobs for those aged 16 and older rose by 366,000 on year, the largest increase among all the age brackets. However, the number of jobs for those aged between 15 to 29 dropped by 98,000 amid the dwindling population of the age group. Is this a pattern that we're going to continue to see considering the demographic changes? Uh, exactly. Uh, the while we saw the uh, number of jobs falling uh, for 14 to 29-year-olds, the uh, actual number of 14 and 29-year-olds fell as well. In fact, it fell more than the uh, loss in jobs. That's why we had the rise in employment. If we break down the uh, 14 to 29-year-old figures, then it becomes a bit more interesting. Uh, From uh, 14 to 19, uh, we had... uh, Employment rate fell by 0.1%, uh, but they should be in school. Mm. So, right, uh, sure. 
Now, employment rate for 20 to 24-year-olds, that's uh, only 46.5%, but compared to last year, it gained 0.9 percentage points. Uh, And then for um, 25 to 29-year-olds, it was 72.3%, so it's really good, actually. Uh, It gained 0.5 percent point from last year. So if you break down the age bracket, then a lot of it is because the uh, number of people in that age group fell uh, and also uh, because uh, things maybe, at least if you uh, look at employment figures, employment rates may actually be getting better. But still, I don't think you're going to solve this problem until we have a a big labor reform. A lot of reason why uh, young people do not get jobs is that they do not want to get stuck in jobs in a bad sector. Mm. So rather than getting a job in the bad sector and perhaps trying to move up later on, because of the uh, labor market rigidities, they cannot do that. So what they're trying to do is get a good job from the get-go. That means they're waiting to, willing to wait for a good job. That means they may be staying unemployed for a while. Okay, that is where we're going to have to leave it for Weekly Economy Review this week. Professor Yang, it's been a pleasure as always. Uh, take care and thank you for your analysis. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index shed 15.22 points, or 0.6% on Friday, to close the week at 2,525.05. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also fell, losing 14.45 points, or 1.64%, to close at 868.08. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 0.61 against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,313.51. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next up, it's a Korea Trending Hour daily segment where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online. And for that, in the studio, we have with us news editor Daniel Chair. Daniel, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. It's good to see you too, Jungle. Okay, let's get into our first story. What do you have for us? K-pop is enjoying global popularity today. Idols take that make it big in Korea instantly garner international recognition, of course. But there have been continuing reports that shed light on the darker side of the industry in terms of how these stars are treated. Right. So I understand that this story is about health concerns involving K-pop idols, specifically about the extreme lengths that female idols have had to go through to maintain their extraordinarily slim figures. Uh, This is an issue that's long been brought up by former idols, but it seems something is now being done about it. Yes, according to the Seoul Metropolitan Council on Thursday, the bylaws on protecting young artists proposed by People Power Party lawmaker Kim Gyunam have been passed. Its purpose is to prevent talent agencies and record labels from forcing their trainees and artists to undergo brutal weight loss and diet regimens. Officials agreed on the need for such measures after research carried out on some 3,900 entertainment agencies in Seoul last September exposed the lack of strict legal guidelines ensuring the protection of the rights of the trainees and artists. Among some 4,700 agencies in Korea, more than 82% are based in the nation's capital, by the way. Okay, so how severe has the issue been? Can you give us uh, a clearer picture of some of the practices that have gone on? Sure. 
if you look at another uh, realm, former boxers talk about how difficult it is to work out so hard while eating so little to maintain their weight for certain fights. Mm. Similar situations for idols. But it's not just for a select number of months. Fighters can let themselves go after the weigh-in and the hellish starving and training programs won't be necessary unless they pick a match against a lighter opponent in a different weight class, right? Mm, uh, right. But for idols, this is a process that goes on continuously for years and years, even decades in some cases. Many trainees spend many years just preparing for their big debut, and those who rise to stardom want to maintain their physical appearance, not to disappoint fans. Yes, and we've heard some extreme examples of specific diet methods as well, right? Yes, diet methods mentioned include splitting a single apple into parts to be consumed as separate meals, or eating only a few quail eggs without the yolk. Uh, some confess to drinking water just to feel full due to malnutrition and immune deficiency. Many of them suffer from allergies and sustain random bruises on their body. Salt City is also reviewing ways to respond quickly to related cases, including providing much-needed counseling and therapy to ensure trainees and idols that lose their place in the industry can get back on their feet. There are also plans to provide career guidance to these individuals, and we're not talking about Female idols, we're talking about both male and female uh, youths that are, that are learning, training, and striving to become stars. Well, it sounds like progress, at least. Hopefully, with such frameworks in place, it will ensure that the health and welfare of idols are protected. Let's move on to our second story now. What do you have for us? Mengbang Beach has become quite the tourist hotspot since BTS held a photo shoot for one of their album covers there. But it looks like those who are looking to visit the place on a BTS pilgrimage will need to hurry. Right, so fans would visit this beach and take photos from the locations and sites featured in the album cover. I understand that there were even special photo zones set up for that purpose. But some of the features that were on the album cover may no longer remain. That's right. According to Samchuk City on Thursday, they will all be removed within this month. So if you want to make fond memories by taking pictures in the part of the beach where the cover art of BTS's smash hit single Butter was created, you'll need to hurry. After the photo shoot that took place in 2021, the parasols, sunbeds, beach volleyball facilities, surfboards, everything used for that historic photo shoot was left intact. Right, so after all this time, why the sudden decision to remove them? In December, the K-pop group's agency Hive requested for the city to remove them, citing intellectual property rights infringement. It's understandable, considering that BTS brand and its artists have been used as part of a tourist attraction without their prior consent. Mm. The city did spend about 50 million won, or around $38,000, to create and maintain the BTS photos on in October, and the total cost of maintaining the venue is reported to be around 100 million won. Many local residents expressed their disappointment at having to lose one of the city's biggest tourist attractions, but it is, uh, it is an, uh, I suppose, not an ugly end with the, uh, with the, uh, the city uh, obliging the request by the high management agency, and the agency not getting all aggressive like filing a lawsuit against the city. Sure, I guess uh, thankfully it didn't go to that level, but uh, the city creating a tourist attraction and making money off it without the consent of BTS and HYBE, uh, as you said, that is rather unfortunate, and I guess it's understandable that the group uh, wanted to protect their intellectual rights. Uh, this also raises the question about other similar sites around the country, sites that unofficially pay homage to BTS. They could face the same fate. We'll see if that does happen to those sites as well. Let's move on to our last story. What do you have for us? The Warsaw Philharmonic Orchestra is set to perform in Korea next month. 
Yes, this is set to be quite the treat for many music lovers here. Can you tell us more about the orchestra and the upcoming event? Yes, classical concert organizer Mast Media announced on Friday that the Warsaw Philharmonic Orchestra will perform on February 14th, Valentine's Day, at the Salt Art Center. Part one of the concert will feature music by Polish composers. For the second part of the performance, the orchestra will perform works of Chopin and Beethoven. Founded in 1901 in the Polish capital, the orchestra endured the grueling test of time, including even World War II. During the tragic event, the orchestra's main concert venue was destroyed, and many members lost their lives. However, in 1950, the orchestra was reborn stronger than before, while firmly maintaining its Polish roots. As one of the most recognized and respected orchestras in the world, Warsaw Philharmonic performance as an inseparable part of the International Chopin Piano Competition Finals. They also accompany the winners of that contest during performances across the globe. Yeah, so the orchestra will be the key attraction, but there are some standout performers that are joining them that some fans are eager to see as well, right? Yes, it is about the whole, not the sum of its parts, but we do look forward to seeing some of the stars. Andrzej Boreko, who has been serving as the music and artistic director of the Warsaw Philharmonic Orchestra since 2019, will be a part of the performance in Korea. Also, pianist Sonu Yegwon will be performing with the orchestra. He became the first Korean pianist to win a gold medal at the Van Cliburn International Piano Competition. Born in Anyang, Korea, he began learning piano when he was just eight and has never looked back, never slowed down. He <laughs> says he's still striving to reach for the truth and beauty in music and hopes to convey those emotions to the audience. Yes, we had him on the show last year as well, of course. He has a very fervent following, I'm sure. They'll be delighted to see him perform as well. That's where we're going to wrap it up for today's Career Trending. Thank you for those stories, Daniel, and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for having me. up it's our new and improved movie spotlight our weekly segments where our film critics give their recommendations on what to watch this weekend here in korea let's bring them in now first we have jason beshevace to my right hello jason hello jango great to be here as always yes and this week we have mark raymond with us as well mark it's great to have you with us today as well nice to see you again Okay, so in our revamped segment, we either talk about our critics' recommendations or if there is a major new release that cannot be ignored, we ask whether it is worth recommending. And our first film this week falls into that second category. It is Alienoid Part 2 Return to the Future. The Korean title is Wegein Yibu, and it's directed by uh, Che Dong-un, and it stars a whole list of names, including Kim Woo-bin, Kim Tae and Yujunya, just to name a few. So, Jason, this is a continuation of the events in the first film, right? Or part one? That's right. There's actually a summary um, uh, in the, the first like five minutes of the film. Uh, I actually sat down and rewatched the first part. So uh, that wasn't so useful for me. But I'm sure for audiences like scratching their heads, you know, <laughs> trying to work out what happened in the first film, it'd be very... Um, yeah, beneficial, no doubt. Um, but yeah, the first film was a, a huge box office failure. Uh, it failed to connect with audiences, sold just 1.5 uh, million tickets, well below its break-even point. You know, I was thinking, should I summarise the, the the plot of the first film? 
and uh, it's kind of difficult and uh, <laughs> but essentially it's split into different periods you've got the like the 1300s you've got the the current day and you've got one or two time periods in between and in a nutshell you've got these kind of alien prisoners who are being locked in human bodies uh, and then you've got this one particular bad nefarious uh, alien known as the architect uh, who basically wants to end mankind uh, and key to stopping him is this legendary sword and so part two basically sees the same thing a lot tidier if, if, if my ads and uh, so we see the various characters that are in the first film some we see more of some we see less of and uh, yeah they try to seek they seek to get their hands on the sword quite a bit shorter this time 122 minutes uh, and it's helmed uh, and written, co-written by one of the most commercially, if not the most commercially successful uh, directors in Korean cinema, Che Dong-hun. Uh, he made films such as Big Swindle, Tatsa, uh, The Thieves, Assassination, among others. Uh, and yeah, the production for both parts cost, cost a staggering 70 billion won. Right, that's just over 50 million US dollars, I believe. Yeah, and filming took 30 months during the peak of the pandemic as well, which probably didn't help with the budget. So yeah, it was filmed uh, in 2021. Um, and so yeah, that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, part one was the second most expensive career movie ever made, I believe, after Snowpiercer. So together, part one and two, they are essentially the most expensive set of films ever made in Korea. As you mentioned, the first film bombed at the box office and it attracted a lot of criticism for its confusing storytelling, jarring structure. Was this one any better? Would you recommend it? I would, actually. Um, I was one of the the first film supporters. Uh, yes, it had its shortcomings. Uh, it was jarring. It kind of goes back and forth between different time periods. It's not particularly well edited. Uh, but but I lo- uh, you know rewatching it yesterday actually some of the set pieces in the film are absolutely fantastic. Oh wow! Um, and uh, certainly I think Chedong was trying to do something different. I mean you know science fiction has always been a genre in Korean cinema that's really struggled with audiences. I think that's in part because it's a genre that's kind of you know well entrenched into kind of Western you know popular culture and it's quite hard to localize but I think he did it quite successfully albeit it was a commercial failure um, and you know you'll see you know influences such as Terminator Terminator 2 in particular uh, also the Marvel films and here we see more of that but it definitely is tidier it's, it's less jarring it's fun and actually the way the kind of narratives come together I think is somewhat quite clever mm. um, and I had an absolute blast with it. And the visual effects are sensational, uh, actually groundbreaking. And I'm, I'm not just saying that. It, for Korean cinema, it's groundbreaking. Um, it almost lo- it does look like a Marvel film in some places. Um, some people may hate that. Some people may enjoy it. You know, it's definitely trying to attract both young audiences. You know, with the comic book kind of uh, s sequences, uh, but. But also you've got the melodrama, you've got the... I mean, some of it feels very much like a period film. So kind of luring those those older <laughs> crowds in as well. Um, and I think, yeah, it is a significant film. Uh, I like Che dong I think this is actually one of his uh, certainly most... Yeah, most notable works of, of, re, right. of his recent filmography. 
Um, I think it's a step up for him. Whether audiences feel the same way, I don't know, but I would certainly recommend it. As I was watching it, though, I, I think one thing that really struck me is how the streaming kind of industry is now influencing films. So we've seen that with movies such as Concrete Utopia, and here as well, it feels like you know uh, streaming is kind of impacting you know the kind of stories that filmmakers are telling so this is a movie and I some some would argue perhaps that it would work better as a series right okay right so um and uh, but I think Chedong has actually argues well you know what the visual effects were so demanding that it deserves to be seen in a cinema right. you know with a budget right um and but yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I'm really fascinated by the how the industry is evolving. Right. And uh, yeah, I would highly recommend it and go and see it, you know, on the big screen rather than waiting for it to uh, drop on, you know, one of the uh, streaming services. Well, a wholehearted recommendation from Jason, yeah, which I think some people might have been surprised by. Mark, what about you? Have you catched this film and what do you think of it? I have not, but I have not. It's not really my, uh, <laughs> the, the type of movie I would normally seek out. Uh, I am intrigued by it. I mean, it does seem to be um, a bit, bit of a divide between Korean critics really don't seem to like it at all, mm. especially the first one. Mm, uh, but yeah. certainly West, more uh, like people like Jason, I know other Western critics who have seen the film, even the first film seem to be more positive on it. And I know the second film is getting... Uh, like Jason, most of those critics also like this one better. So it makes me kind of, I'm kind of intrigued to maybe uh, check it out. Better. Yeah, and, uh, and yeah, I don't, um, I don't always see a lot of the big Korean films, depending on you know, kind of the release schedule and sure. things like that. And so, um, uh, but yeah, I'm kind of curious to maybe see it when it. Uh, I mean, I have to see the first one first, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it's, watch, it's worth it's, noting it's actually investment. Uh, for those listening, uh, it's available on Netflix with English subtitles. So um, okay. if you want to watch the first film with English subs, there's your chance. Right. Do you think people... You mentioned how perhaps audiences might not come see this film, even though you say it is uh, better than the first well, one. Well, no, it's interesting because it, because it's been available on, on streaming services. Mm -hmm. I looked at the you know the, the Netflix chat, not, not just Netflix, but the other stream platforms. The, the first film has actually gone up you know, into the top 10. So people are watching it and re-watching it. Mm. Uh, and reservations, looking at uh, reservations, they hit over 100,000. So mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm actually kind of surprised. I don't think it's going to bomb in the same way as the first part, which is, I guess, somewhat ironic because you got a two-part film. It's a big gamble. I mean, yeah. much in the same way as along with along with the guards or Shinko Hamke, which actually did very well. Both parts sold over 10 million missions. So if you've got the first part that bombs, then you, what do yeah. you do with the second? But, you know, they basically made it available uh, on streaming platforms uh, and people are watching it. Some like it, some don't. But, yeah, certainly it's, I mean... People, some people at least, uh, yeah. 100,000 people are going out to watch it. So I guess that's something. So, yes, it would have to be a, you know, a gargantuan box office hit to break even at this point. But, and I don't see that happening. But actually, it might do better than the first film. Interesting. We'll see how it does perform. So that's Alienoid to return to the future. Okay, let's move on now to Mark's recommendation for this week. It is a smaller art house release. It is the Iranian film No Bears. It has the same alliterated title in Korean. It premiered at the Venice Film Festival all the way back in 2022, but it's receiving a local release here now. Mark, can you tell us more about it? Yeah, this is the latest film from uh, Jafar Panani, and it's his fifth film. 
since he was actually banned from making movies by the Iranian government, uh, which happened in 2009 because of his participation in anti-government protests. And so most of his work since has been kind of about the fact that he really can't make films in the conventional <laughs> way. Uh, the first film he made after was called This Is Not a Film, uh, kind of a joking reference to the fact that he can't officially make films. Mm. And he's actually been under house arrest at various times. He's been actually in prison. He is now out again, but was in prison when the film was at Venice and couldn't actually attend for that reason. And so in most of the movies he's been making since then have been kind of these meta commentaries about um, his situation. And this latest film, No Bears, is probably the most explicit one yet. It's kind of a bit of a mixture of fiction and nonfiction. Uh, he plays himself, uh, a film or kind of a version of himself, I should say, uh, who's a filmmaker. He's making this film remotely. Um, so and he's basically uh, goes to the border of Iran and Turkey. And so the film is being shot across the border in Turkey. He's staying in Iran, giving kind of instructions on this film. And so we see the kind of film within a film he's making. But then he also gets involved with the local uh, village and uh, there's a big controversy because of a photo that he may or may not have taken. And that becomes part of the plot of the film kind of as well. And that becomes kind of also kind of a metaphor for his own situation dealing with authorities, this time these more local authorities. But clearly there's there's some overlap and metaphors with the Iranian government kind of as a whole. So, yeah, it's a very sort of, um, again, one of these movies that's a kind of about the, the process of making right. movies and how he can't really make movies in the same way anymore, but yet is still trying to do some version of being a filmmaker, essentially. Very briefly for listeners who mm. might not know, how does he make films then if he's not allowed to make films? Yeah, yeah he kind of smuggles them out. Uh, again, the, the technology has really allowed him to do this, mm. right? The, the, like he, if this okay. was 30 years ago, he wouldn't really be able to make movies. So yeah, we see him actually, you know... Um, giving instructions over Skype to his to his crew who are kind of making the movie for him and I him see. and they you know they give him and he says no you have to do it again so he makes them retake scenes right. so he is doing this and again he's making himself a kind of a character in a way that he didn't really before when he made films before this right. they were more conventionally you know right. dramas now he can't really make those type of movies so he's making movies about himself and his situation through digital technology essentially yeah. so this was your pick for this week mm -hmm. what did you make of it and also this film and much of his work it's highly acclaimed especially mm -hmm. by western critics yes. but how much of that is actually down to the quality of the films themselves yeah. rather than how much people want to support him politically especially yeah, yeah it's really a hard question to answer really it's uh, because um as i've kind of described the plot to you you know, they're intertwined, right? Like you can't really, it's really hard to separate out the art and the politics here because they're just, they're part of the same kind of brew. One thing I would say about the film, one of the things I really appreciate about Panani, especially this film, uh, there is something quite self-critical going on here too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. not simply I'm a hero and I'm a murderer and the government is bad. <laughs> you know, that, that would be the really simplistic version of what would happen. Right. He's much more like... Uh, 
you know, at least the character he plays in the movie, which again is a version, I guess, of himself. Um, you could definitely could criticize this uh, person and this character in the movie for how he gets involved in these local politics, how he doesn't really understand what's going on. And he, you know, maybe puts some people in danger that unnecessarily. And also his whole, um, you know, interesting about Panani is that he has kind of chosen to stay. He probably could have gotten out with his connections. A lot of Iranian directors have left, right? But he has really chosen to stay. Mm. And there's an interesting scene in the movie where he's on the border and he accidentally, somebody tells him, oh, actually, you've stepped over the border because, of course, <laughs> there is no border. It's an imaginary line and right. nations are imaginary. But he immediately kind of steps back and says, oh, I can't go over this line. So he's almost like, a, so there's a kind of a question in the film, is it just uh, like an ethical stance he's taking or is there something about him he just doesn't want to leave? He can't really take that leap to get out of the situation. And he almost, well, like, you know, feels this responsibility to stay, even though it might not right. be the correct thing right. for himself. So th that I think all that is very interesting and makes the film more than just a really simplistic kind of political allegory. So, right, so even if the film's perhaps not necessarily good, it's still very interesting and fascinating. Oh, it is very good. Yeah, I think it's very <laughs> yeah, good. Okay. As well, yes. It is good then. Okay. Yeah. So, Jason, you've seen it as well then? I did, yeah. I watched it last night. It's fantastic. Um, yeah, I mean, it's deceptively simple, but actually it's, yeah, as, as the film goes on, he's kind of um, yeah, unraveling these, these uh, layers, dealing with the ethics as well of him as a <laughs> filmmaker and the subjects, uh, as, you know, that, who are trying to get out of Iran and, um, and yeah, not trying to exploit them. And, you know, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, and it's also really fun. I mean, it's, it's just basically structures in a way where you've kind of got these different things that go, go, um, that happen to him in the village. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's it remains amusing throughout. It never loses steam, um, and it's just got these really endearing characters that you just you just you just want to root for, you know. And um, yeah, I liked it a lot. I think it was it was fantastic. Wow! So it sounds definitely worth seeking out this one this week. So that's No Bears, and that's where we're going to leave it for Movie Spotlight. Jason Mark, it's been great to have you with us. Uh, take care, and we'll catch up with you next time. Thank you. Yeah, take care. This is pianist Sonny Yegwan. You're now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. It's time now for our Friday closing segment next week from Seoul, where we look at what's coming up in the days ahead. And joining me in the studio today, we have Emma Sparks with us filling in for Richard once again. Emma, hello, it's great to see you. Hello. Okay, so what's the first thing we should look out for? Uh, the Gangwon 2024 Winter Youth Olympics is scheduled to start next Friday and has already earned its place in history as the first Winter Youth Olympic Games to be held in Asia. The opening ceremony, which will take place simultaneously at the Gangneung Oval in Gangneung and the Pyeongchang Dome in Pyeongchang on the 19th, will carry the theme Let Us Shine. Yeah, so the Winter Youth Olympics kicking off next week then. Is there anything else that we should note that makes these games special? 
The move has been praised for its sustainability as the Games will benefit from the use of facilities that were created for the Pyeongchang 2018 Winter Olympics. Mm. It is also must be exciting for the young participants to be competing in the same location as previous Olympians. Sure. The region is expecting to receive a record number of 1,803 athletes from 79 countries and around 25,000 spectators, making the Games the largest yet in terms of number of athletes and participating countries. These young athletes will be competing in a plethora of winter sports, including speed skating, ice hockey, curling, bobsledding and cross-country skiing. South Korea will have the largest delegation with 102 athletes, followed by the United States and Germany. Luckily for visitors, all games are free except for the opening ceremony. Tickets can be booked online at kangwon2024.com. Well, that sounds like a great opportunity to see some exciting sports while supporting the next generation of winter sports stars as well. OK, let's move on to our next item. What's the next thing we should look out for? Uh, South Korea's soccer team has touched down in Qatar, ready to compete in the 2023 AFC Asian Cup, which kicks off today. The Taeguk Warriors will be taking on Bahrain in their first match on the 15th. The national team has been training in Abu Dhabi, United Arab Emirates, in advance of these games. Led by head coach Jürgen Klinsmann, prominent Korean players such as Son Heung-min, Hwang Hee-chan, Kim Min-jae and Lee Kang-in, Join the Taeguk Warriors in Abu Dhabi to beat Iraq 1-0 in a friendly on the 6th. With such big names on the roster, it'll be exciting to see how Korea fares in this year's competition in Qatar. After its match against Bahrain next week, the team will go on to play Jordan on the 20th and Malaysia on the 25th. If the team is successful in winning the tournament, it will be the first time for South Korea to take the Asian Cup since 1960. Yes, we'll be previewing South Korea's first game just before it kicks off on Monday's Sports Roundup next week, so do join us for that. And what's the last thing we should keep an eye out for next week? Uh, Preparations are underway for the upcoming Lunar New Year, and the SRT Rail Service has announced its ticket ticket sales schedule. As you know, the Lunar New Year period is incredibly busy, with people trying to travel and visit family members all over the country, and the battle for tickets is fierce. So for those looking to travel between February 8th and the 12th, tickets will be going on sale for a four-day period from January 15th to the 18th. Access to tickets can be difficult for people such as the elderly who struggle with booking applications and can be slower on the uptake when it comes to obtaining tickets. For this reason, the 15th and 16th of January will be priority sales days for people such as the elderly and those with disabilities. Tickets will be available for reservation online and over the phone. I see. So when will the rest of the public be able to reserve tickets? The rest of the public will be able to reserve tickets on the 17th and 18th of January, and those tickets will only be sold online. The SRT recommends that prospective buyers familiarize themselves with the website, registration and booking processes in advance of when the tickets go on sale. Different routes will be sold on different days, so it's best for those interested to check in advance. OK, that's where I leave it for next week from Seoul. Emma, thank you for that roundup, and we'll hopefully see you again soon. Yes, thank you. And that's where we close out our show. Join us again on Monday for more news, views and reviews from Korea. Till then, I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye.